This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the Redbox podcast i'm matt jolly and happy new year i uh, hope you had a good break thank you for all the lovely messages about the specials that we put out uh, between christmas and new year and some of you have even been posting on uh, the old apple podcasts reviews uh, sue fitz says the highlight of my day having worked in politics in a previous life but now living abroad it's so refreshing to be able to listen to such informed intelligent discussions the columnist panel is always interesting particularly david aronovich and daniel finkelstein well good news sue uh, they're coming up in just a moment naturally holds it all together effortlessly his passion for politics is contagious and his insights bring a new way of looking at things while James says, love uh, red boxes to match on his guest columnist makes my life slightly but nonetheless perceptibly better. High praise indeed. If you want to uh, post a comment, go on to the, the where you get your podcast from because uh, it's quite good for the mumbo jumbo charts and more people end up finding. Or just tell your friends, go on social media or whatever, tell your friends about Times Red Box. That can be your New Year's resolution. Or just let us know what you think. You can tweet me at Matt Shorley or at Times Red Box. Um, and uh, it's always nice to find out what you think about the podcast. Um, and especially uh, thank you to everyone who sent in messages saying, could we say hello to you? Oh, I think we got through a lot of them. I don't think we managed to get through all of them um, bef- uh, in the show with Mariella Foster. But I just want to say uh, Nathan got in touch. Uh, Nathan Buchan said, could you say hello to Nathaniel Barnes? on the podcast at Christmas uh, but he said that on Christmas Eve which was optimistic about um, when we might have recorded the Christmas specials so anyway uh, hello to Nathaniel Barnes and if you want to get in touch you can email me matt.chorley at times.media right coming up on today's episode think this time last year we've all been told to work from home there were concerns about Covid ripping through schools Labour was ahead in the polls Boris Johnson was pinning his hopes on vaccinating his way out of trouble some things never change. So, what to do about it? Boris Johnson's woes do not appear to have been alleviated uh, by the Christmas break. But what of Keir Starmer? He's pushing a big reset with a big speech, wrapping himself in the flag. We examine the politics of patriotism. That's our big thing coming up on the episode a little bit later on. But first of all, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And as it's Tuesday, it must be Vigovic. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive, it's alive! 
Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, indeed. It's a very happy new year to everyone's favourite portmanteau of political opinion. It's Finkelvich. Uh, happy new year to Daniel Finkelstein. Happy new year. And happy new year to David Aronovich. Happy new year. What is, I mean, I know I should have asked this question a year ago. What is an ultimate portmanteau? <laughs> it's it is, better it than is, being a it, penultimate portmanteau, David. Yes, That's... exactly. A, a disappointing, <laughs> mediocre portmanteau. One better. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, anyway, it's very nice to have you here and back. And uh, let's turn our attention. We're sort of on the slightly on the subject of political predictions. Um, will Boris Johnson make it to the end of the year? And there's a lot of sort of shenanigans going on uh, with people who might quite like to replace them. So what do we call the followers of Liz Trust, Rishi Sunak or Dominic Raab? You know, Blairites, Brownites, that, that was all right. Cameroons we just about got away with. Uh, what do we call them, Danny? <laughs> I'm not sure that you're going to call the followers of Dominic Raab anything, are you? Um, uh, I don't think he's <laughs> going to have terribly many followers. Um, so the interesting thing about this is that... Uh, is, um, is how you turn wanting uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, or Liz Truss, to be the leader into making that a fact. I think what the way that you um, that you call them at the moment is supporters of Boris Johnson. If you approach any of those people right now, they'll tell you that they the one thing they want most is for Boris Johnson to remain in office. And the difficulty in removing him is how you get them... Uh, past that being their public position even if it isn't their private position there's what i call a market failure in political coups you know there may be a benefit to everybody of having a political coup electorally um but uh, to each specific person there's mainly a cost uh, and they're not necessarily wanting to exercise that cost so at the moment i think you would probably call supporters of either those people prime ministerial loyalists <laughs> But I suppose they're loyal until they're not, David. Exactly. Uh, yeah, well, Danny had a very good line about that, didn't he? Which was uh, about uh, Nadine Doris's loyalty um, <clears throat> to Boris Johnson, essentially being a loyalty to herself. And as Danny said, that's the loyalty you really can count on. Um, uh, and I, I was, I was, I, given how Corbyn, uh, when Corbyn came over, his followers became Corbynistas, right? And I thought that was kind of quite unusual. They could become Corbynites and so on, uh, but they became Corbynistas because of his association with kind of Latin American insurgencies. And I thought that was more imaginative. And I do think we're going to have to have words for these people. Obviously, a collective term for people who support Dominic Raab is rabble. I mean, there's, I, I think we can all agree Rabbis, about that. They're, 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 no, that's what they certainly <laughs> won't be. Uh, they're they're rabble. But then I kind of thought... I mean, uh, essentially, you can add ist, it, ister, ian, or inian to somebody's name, etc., in order to make their supporters something. And so what do you prefer? Do you prefer trussists to trussites? Trussites, I think, sounds like something that you kind of, you know, uh, Mary Anning found along the beach in Dorset, etc., kind of <laughs> set in stone. So they're kind of, they, if I, oh, it's a very, very interesting trussite. It seems to have had 50, you know, 1,500 legs and be uh, eight foot long or something like that. If you're, a, uh, if you're a Sunak supporter, if you're a Sunakite, that is straightforward Old Testament, isn't it? I mean, you know, these people that come, the Amalekites fought the Sunakites, etc. So would you be a Sunakian, in which case you sound like a Kardashian? 
if it's a Michael Gove was ever to stand, then obviously it's Govian. Govian is fine because that's a bit like Jove, etc. And he is a bit sort of Olympian, uh, etc. And I just thought it was kind of quite fun. I thought we might as well <laughs> anticipate, anticipate the moment when we have to call these people something. And for what and Dan is obviously right in one sense, which is they're all saying they're loyalists now, but actually, actually, we all know that they're going around friends of Liz Trust, they're trussites. Friends of Rishi Sunak, Sunakites or Sunakians. Uh, that's what I say. Friends of Dominic Raab. Sunakians sounds like, does sound a bit uh, Star Trek. Yeah. You know, it could be Sunakabites, <laughs> couldn't it? Um, the, uh, the, um, it's interesting. Don't, uh, don't trot, you're, this is much more your expert field than mine, David. Don't Trotskyites get annoyed when they're called Trotskyites and want to be called Trotskyists. I never quite understood why that was. I think it's because the Stalinists, ists, not Stalinites, called them Trotskyites. And I don't know whether the Stalinists, who did call themselves Stalinists, called the Trotskyites Trotskyites because they thought it was inferior, an inferior well, I'm just wondering whether there's, I'm wondering whether these, these, um, these letters do have any political meaning. Do they relate at all to sort of ideological issues? In other words, somebody could be a Thatcherite, um, suggesting that there was some sort of ideology connected with uh, Thatcherism. Definitely. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering what, you know, what the differences between these would be. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that uh, anybody kind of really knows what ideology they'd be connecting to either of those people, really. But, but you don't have to know. It can be a kind of quite vague thing. I mean, you can't be anything other than Johnsonian because you can't be a Johnsonist because there's no such thing. <coughs> there may conceivably be a Trussism. Um, that's possible because she might actually collect around herself a sort of coherent body of a, a body of, of thinking. Um, but I do think this, as I said, I think we've got to kind of nail this one fairly early, so we've got something to go with when this moment occurs. Well, the, the listeners have been trying to help as we go along. Uh, Richard says supporters of Liz Trust for PM are surely Trustlerdites. Uh, Alan uh, goes for Trustafarians. She's very good. <laughs> and uh, David, uh, David is David and Islington suggest supporters of Liz Truss are lizards. Yes, I was about to say that you, you haven't you haven't missed out using their first names. Uh, uh, Carissa oh, says trussers and Sunakis, uh, trustees, uh, a rabble um, uh, from John. So it's definitely uh, do, do, do names. Does it is it a problem for Liz Truss becoming uh, prime minister if her name is a met surgical device. <laughs> well, in other regions, yes, has a has. In other words, are you in the English speaking world? Has a has a Mister has a jock strap ever become prime minister? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yeah, the, the, we had one prime minister that was named uh, that had the same name as a boot, though, didn't we? Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite the same as uh, something you put um, downstairs. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see. I just wonder whether whether it, whether your name does make a difference. That actually, if you do have a daft name, does well, that hold you back in? Politics? It would be interesting to it would be interesting to have a study of it. It's certainly true that that height makes a big difference, um, both in actually intrusive chief executives, but also in uh, chief executives of countries. So uh, there's definitely a height bias in elections um, and in selections for members of parliament and in presidential candidates. It doesn't mean, by the way, an equation between height and selection, but there is a definitely a height relationship. Like they, people have done work on that. But I'm not sure how you would measure silliness of name. Uh, it's not probably I want to be, I want to be careful an area about this. I want people to get into. 
I mean, I want to be careful about this, Dan, but there's also a follicular uh, association. Oh, yeah, there I mean, is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not sure. Also, I, 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 being a person of a, you know, who, who is slightly inclined to put on weight, I'm not at all sure that large people are particularly welcomed into the, uh, into the upper echelons these days. I think you have to have that kind of, you know, Othello lean and hungry look. Look, I mean, what we're, what, by the way, what we're, what we're tiptoeing around, of course, is what will be very interesting to see is, is gender and race stereotypes um, and uh, how much they'll impact the leadership election and the electability of um, the candidates. I, I haven't seen any good, reliable work on uh, the relationship of electorate to female candidates or to ethnic minority candidates. It wouldn't be surprising to me if that, if um, to, to discover that 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 people tend to um, vote differently based on what the ethnic minority or the ethnic group the candidate belongs to is. That would certainly accord with experience in other places. I suppose part of the problem is, by its nature, because we've had so few female leaders of political parties or, uh, I mean, in terms of major political parties, none from, a, from an ethnic minority. So so those that there have been are, are sort of small in number and therefore questions about what do you think of female leaders or senior female politicians get really bound up in what do you think of Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May oh. and Liz Truss personally rather than in the general? You'll always wonder uh, at the point where it actually happens why it is you ever wondered about it at all. I mean, that's that that's that tends to be uh, what, what, what the kind of situation when you discover that people actually are much more open to these ideas than you worry that they're going to be, uh, and so on. I mean, maybe that's too complacent a view. I mean, obviously, from 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 a women's politician point of view, they do rather tend to have to be three or four times as good as men in order to do it, and they will be subject to forms of criticism which men just simply will never have to worry about. I mean, can you can you imagine a woman um, uh, appearing in public the way that Boris Johnson does and getting away without a kind of, you know, tremendous amount of, of criticism or behaving uh, in that kind of... Uh, 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 or indeed, if a woman's voice goes at all high when she's trying to make a point, that shrillness in a way that men never kind of get, uh, get, 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 get ever put to them. Women who seek power are somehow or other... 20 times as suspect as men who seek power because there is a kind of long-term cultural assumption which we're you know we're gradually fighting off that that's what men do and it's not what women do so there's always that kind of that that that, that, that kind of huge problem um that that, that that women will have i i'm not i i don't know whether that adheres now to uh people from ethnic minorities in any in any significant way it seems to me by and large, looking at where ethnic minority people now sit, stand or stand for selection in good seats as opposed to marginal seats, that actually there doesn't appear to be any drop-off in the support for them. That was Daniel Finkstein and David Wanovich. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the politics of patriotism. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Let's all stand. The Conservative Party, with a few functionaries and a fringe of sycophantic liberals, arrogates to itself the title of national, to which it has no right. Old divisions cast out, a new spirit in the nation, working together. Unity, solidarity, partnership, one Britain. That is the patriotism for the future. Where never again do we fight our politics by appealing to one section of our nation at the expense of another. When your parent ill and in pain is my parent. Your friend unemployed and helpless is my friend. Your neighbour, my neighbour. That is the true patriotism of a nation. But let us remember what Disraeli was celebrated for. It was a vision of Britain. A vision of Britain where patriotism, loyalty, dedication to the common cause courses through the veins of all and nobody feels left out. It was a vision of Britain coming together to overcome the challenges we face. Disraeli called it one nation, one nation. We heard the phrase again as the country came together to defeat fascism. And we heard it again as Clement Attlee's Labour government rebuilt Britain after the war. The Home Secretary encouraged people to boo. Well, in this conference hall, we are patriots. When we discuss the fine young men and women who represent all our nations, we don't boo. We get to our feet and we cheer. Stirring stuff, stirring stuff there. That was Clement Attlee in a 1945 election broadcast, Tony Blair at the Labour Party conference in 1995, Ed Miliband in a speech in 2012, and Keir Starmer in his party conference speech uh, in September last year. Well, today, Keir Starmer makes another big speech in Birmingham, wrapping himself in the flag. Well, in fact, he's got two flags uh, behind him, really to hammer home the message, outlining plans 
for what he describes as a new Britain in which Brit- people can enjoy security, prosperity and respect. Well, it's about almost exactly a year ago that the Labour Party was drawing up a memo for a patriotic rebrand. It said the party should make use of the union flag, veterans and dress smartly. Whatever could they mean? Uh, we'll bring you uh, clips from Keir Starmer's speech once he's uh, he's underway and uh, read them out, basically. Uh, but we thought what we'd do is unpick the politics of patriotism uh, with a cracking panel for, for you. First of all, Henry Zeffman is the chief political correspondent uh, for The Times and joins me. Hi, Henry. Hi, Matt. Great to be with you. Um, Describe the background to this, because it was about a year ago that the Labour Party had this sort of patriotic rebrand and everybody laughed at the uh, idea of telling them to dress smartly, wrap themselves in the flag. Is this is this that plan coming to fruition now? Keir Starmer kicking off the year um, with this 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 new pitch to the British public? Uh, I guess it is. I mean, I think the big difference with the start of last year is that the British public seems quite like Keir Starmer, or at least they're telling pollsters that they like him a bit more than they like Boris Johnson. And those two facts might be quite closely linked. Um, But it is certainly um, a very patriotic or or speech, which is designed to be seen as very patriotic by Keir Starmer. I think literally his first words of the speech are, or were, I want to celebrate the country we live in. Um, So clearly, yes, that is Keir Starmer's task here, uh, is he is trying to uh, drape his party's message this year in the Union Jack, or two Union Jacks, as he said. <laughs> and th- this this slightly more upbeat note, and actually literally saying, as he will do later, that criticising or highlighting the flaws in the country is not unpatriotic. In fact, it's the patriotic thing to do. It, it strikes me as, as, a, as a seeking to answer the question or the issue. Po- we hear it all the time on the focus groups we do on Times Radio. When um, voters sort of, sort of form this impression, it's quite difficult if they leave the opposition not to do this, but sort of, a, oh, here he comes, moaning about everything again. Because if you're the leader of the opposition, you don't go around talking about how marvellously well everything is going. But as a result, you can seem a bit downbeat and negative. So he's also trying to address that too. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, I think he definitely is. I mean, I think this is one of the big questions for Keir Starmer, uh, this year, isn't it, is that he has much greater authority over his shadow cabinet, over his parliamentary party, over uh, the Labour Party generally than he did three months ago, let alone a year ago. But there remains that question of of what he actually wants to, wants to do with it. Um, and uh, I think in his speech today, he's going to talk about a contract for Britain with three prongs, security, prosperity and respect. Uh, so, you know, that probably provides the broad contours of his positive message going forward. It's still a little bit woolly, but equally, you know, Keir Starmer has surged into a fairly commanding poll lead and lead on best prime minister ratings over Boris Johnson without uh, setting out particularly specific policies. So perhaps he'll think he doesn't need to. And actually, you can just get by on sort of vibes, which is what this speech is today. <laughs> Getting five and five. Henry's efforts stay there because we'll come back to you once, once we've heard a bit of what Keir Starmer's got to say. But you mentioned the the lead that uh, Keir Starmer's built up in the polls. Let's speak to Kelly Beaver, chief executive of the polling firm Ipsos Mori. Uh, morning, morning, Kelly. Just 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 crunch the numbers for us on where we are and how commanding a lead Keir Starmer can consider himself to have. 
Sure. So worth looking at both his ratings, but then also the Labour Party's ratings over the last period. So from a party perspective, Matt, we have seen the Conservative Party dip and really see a decline in the polls since around September. So it's not a singular issue that's at play there for them and certainly not just the leader's performance. There are many other issues at play, but also the Labour Party support as well rise over the, the corresponding period. And from a leader perspective, as uh, your previous panelists just said, we have seen now 44% of Britons would choose Keir Stammer as the most capable PM, comparatively to 31% choosing Boris Johnson. That's quite a difference. And again, there's a difference in the trajectory there. So Keir Stammers has been improving since around September and Boris Johnson has been declining by around the same amount since September. So the whole story around Keir Stammer um, and him having a commanding lead, I think you need to bear in mind very strongly that it is all relative and it is comparatively to Boris Johnson and to his party who have been, I guess, under the cosh when we think about how the public view government's performance overall outside of the vaccine programme and also the impact of some of the, the allegations over the sort of autumn winter period, which have definitely dented their ratings. And by comparison, uh, Keir Stammer, whilst not doing very much over that period, ha has uh, subsequently seen a gain. I suppose the, the, the trick that every opposition leader has to try and pull off is to try and bake that in, that rise in his own ratings and the ratings of the Labour Party, so that they are fixed regardless of what the government then does to so that you know people start seeing him as an alternative prime minister an alternative government in waiting so it doesn't really matter if boris johnson has a good week because he's still the guy who's on top and that that at the moment that that's the that's the, if, if all of the labor gains are just at the expense of because the government had a few bad weeks he's slightly then at the mercy then of the government isn't he yeah, well, we are we are at the midterm stage now and having a look at how both the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson are doing. If you look at comparative previous governments at the midterm, there's no huge differences there, really. And if you look at yeah. uh, Keir Stammer's um, own ratings, they're not really dissimilar to Ed Miliband just before he lost the 2015 election. So, um, you know, the, the importance there really for uh, Keir Stammer is making sure that he's good, not just comparatively to Johnson, but to anybody who might replace Johnson in the future. And what about this question of patriotism, um, Kelly? It's a sort of slightly tricky thing to poll, I suppose, but is it is is Keir Starmer onto something here, or is this just actually the sort of thing that um, uh, you know advisors might say, or pe very political people will say? Well, Jeremy Corbyn was seen as not very patriotic, so you need to be seen as more patriotic. Is this something that, that sort of replays with the public? Do you think? So we have done polling on this over the years, not not immediately recently, but over the years, and we do know that people think patriotism is important in a leader. But it's actually behind some of the more classic prime ministerial qualities that they want to see in their leaders. Like, do you understand the issues that face Britain? Are you seen as a capable leader? Are you seen as having sound judgment, as being good in a crisis, etc.? It's more important patriotism to conservative voters than Labour's and that, that Labour voters. And that's probably not particularly surprising. But I don't want to create the impression that patriotism isn't important even though it's behind all of those and it's definitely seen as a brand weakness for Labour when you when you ask uh, voters in the in the polling that we do. I just want to play you because when that story came out last year about the, the the plan by Labour to wrap themselves in the flag a bit more we ran one of our Times Radio focus groups and asked the voters what they made of 
the flag. There were a mix of voters from different cities across the country. They're all undecided about how to vote. This is what they had to say about the idea of, you know, politics and the flag. Let's take a listen. It doesn't really make a difference to me. They've made an issue of the flag uh, since day one, I suppose, of this crisis. Um, I don't particularly agree with it. I mean, there's an old saying that the Union Jack is the uh, butcher's apron. I don't entirely agree with that either, but it does offend a lot of people. It does. As to whether it's important for a politician to be nationalistic, uh, it can be very, very dangerous. It can be. Well, I'm a bit offended with the flag situation, but um, I think it is what it is. But I'm a bit offended when it comes to the Union Jack. I think it offends too many people. It's, it's just very... Uh, I think it is sensitive to a lot of people from different um, cultures. Uh, well, I haven't got a problem with the, the flag being on display and broadcasts and speeches. Um, I certainly prefer it to that blue flag with the, with the stars on that they had to stand next to you before. It's a complicated business, the flag, Kelly Beaver. Well, patriotism isn't just about a flag. I do love a yeah. focus group, first of all. I love your focus groups, they're <laughs> excellent. Um, it's not just about a flag. It's about how people feel about being a citizen of Britain and how they feel, um, like, are they proud to be a citizen of Britain? And the flag is one symbol of that, but it is not patriotism as a whole. And yeah, overall, yeah. the majority of people in the UK do, do feel proud to be a British citizen. Only one in five would say they'd prefer to be a citizen of another country. And we are a very league table when you look at how we compare in terms of patriotism comparatively to other countries around the world when you look at big studies by Pew and all. So it matters, but it's not the top issue of a voter. Yeah, yeah. Keir Starmer making his big speech in Birmingham this morning. Let's take a listen to what he's been saying about why he really is a patriot. I want to create a contract defined by security, prosperity and respect. To create a contract for a government worthy of the fine nation in which we live. The Labour Party is a deeply patriotic party. Keir Hardy once said that British socialism must wear a local garb. He meant that British socialism was rooted in the everyday concerns of working people. The titans of 1945 were elected to power on the votes of the demobbed servicemen and women. That government took the spirit of collective sacrifice generated by the war and turned it into the National Health Service for which we are so thankful today. It was a patriotic government which understood the importance of national defence, which created NATO, the alliance that has preserved the peace in Europe ever since, and gave this country its independent nuclear deterrent. The 1945 Labour government laid the foundations for the end of empire and the beginning of the modern Commonwealth. Under Wilson, the Open University extended higher education. The Race Relations Act of 1965 prohibited racial discrimination. Barbara Castle's Equal Pay Act was a watershed moment in the fight for gender equality. The Blair government introduced a national minimum wage and repaired the public services that had been neglected under the Tories. When I reflect on previous Labour governments, I have two thoughts. The first is, what a record we have. These three chapters of change aptly Wilson and Blair made Britain a better country. We must be the people who write the fourth chapter. 
the people who create a new Britain in the 21st century. And second, nobody could look on that record and say that Labour is not a patriotic party. Those Labour governments had the ambition to build a society in which everyone can contribute and everyone is valued, to extend security, prosperity and respect to all. This is the tradition we embrace and the mission we inherit. Keir Starmer speaking in the last few minutes, uh, giving a big speech in Birmingham to kick off the political year. Henry Zeffman, chief political correspondent at the Times, is still with us. Uh, Henry, uh, what do you make of that? I mean, it's talk about wrapping himself in the flag. Wrapping himself in Tony Blair is is not an un uh, uh, unrisky decision to make in this of all weeks when half a million people have signed a petition saying you shouldn't have a knighthood. That's true. Although I think uh, the the ship has kind of sailed on Keir Starmer winning round the. Um, residual Labour supporters and in particular Labour activists who uh, viscerally loathe Tony Blair. Um, I mean, it's, it's striking also that he's um, he's standing on the slightly more uncontested terrain, at least within the Labour Party of Wilson and Attlee. And I think he mentioned Keir Hardy at some point in the speech as well. Um, but look, I think Keir Starmer's view uh, is that uh, is that you know the Labour Party, when in government, was much more effective than its multiple very long periods of opposition, um, and he and the people around him would see embracing uh, and starting to speak more about the achievements of their period in government as a necessary condition of being trusted to get back into government again. Harry Zephyr, thank you for that. That's Harry Zephyr, the chief political correspondent at the Times. So, is this speech going to work? Then, is this how Labour gets back in those red wall seats and poll at the weekend, showing? Uh, that Labour were making progress in some of those red wall seats. Well, let's let's speak to Anna Turley, who was the Labour MP for Redcar until she lost her seat in 2019. Hi, Anna. Good morning. Hi, Matt. Nice to have you with us. And uh, Sebastian Payne is a journalist of Financial Times, whose book Broken Heartlands uh, chronicled Labour's problems in traditionally working class areas. Hi, Seb. Hi, Matt. So, straightforward question, Anna: Is this the sort of pitch from Keir Starmer that would win back Redcar for the Labour Party? Well, it's good. It's really good to hear. Um, He had a massive task on his hands, let's be honest, um, trying to deal with the kind of toxic residue of of Corbyn and his lack of patriotism. I mean, a party here, well, a leader who you know wouldn't sing the words to the national anthem, didn't know when the Queen's speech was. A Labour Party conference that had Palestinian flags all over its, uh, you know, being waved from its floor, which would have at that point balked at the idea of waving Union Jacks. We had a really big job to do to detoxify that party, which was one of the biggest reasons here why we had such a calamitous result. So this is really important, and it's really good to see Keir. I think resetting the Labour Party, resetting the Labour brand and I think drawing in our history is almost kind of reclaiming um, the Labour Party from the last few years uh, of his predecessor so I think it's really, really good to hear and yeah, I think, you know, it certainly will go down well in places like this I mean, the priority really for people here is you know, their, their, their life experience, their cost of living, their jobs, their employment, their opportunities, the kind of communities and, and, and spaces they see around them, this is what Labour has to set a vision for next but I think this was an, a really important task that had to be done in places like this where people are patriotic, um, where we do have a big armed forces population, where Corbyn's lack of patriotism did really cut deep. So it was a, an important and necessary step, but it's not the it's not you know all the, it's not going to be all we need to win an election, but it's a very very crucial step on the journey. 
And I suppose that's the issue, isn't it, Sebastian Payne? That to some extent, Keir Starmer is still dealing with the past, trying to to get back to sort of net zero post Corbyn, rather than sort of building forward with anything. Yes, and I think I agree with what Anna just said, that this speech is very good stuff. And what's so striking about it is just how Blairite he's sounding here, because Tony Blair had a dictum that he said many times to Labour MPs and ministers over the years, which is for Labour to win a general election. There are two quite low bars it has to pass. First, it has to be trusted on national security. And second, it has to look like it likes the country it wants to govern. And for much of the past decade, it's not really fulfilled either of those things. And I think you look at Kiyosawa, that's really what this whole speech is. And I was just reading through some of it, Matt. And it, it is a bit like Hugh Grant's speech in Love Actually, that I'm sure we're all far too familiar with after <laughs> Christmas season. You know, listing all these wonderful things. We didn't quite get David Beckham's feet in there, but it's pretty much everything else. And I think that's good. And people will say okay well that sounds decent but what are you going to do so I think if it's quite a good backdrop it shows that he's got this issue about patriotism about security and the concept of trying to bring security into people's lives but again for Keir Starmer this big problem is what are you actually going to do and there's actually nothing in this speech that does that this is one of these kind of hopey visionary speeches which are good they're important but pretty soon Keir Starmer's going to have to come up with some actual policies and on the economy for example where is he going to go when you've got Boris Johnson spending all the time when's on leveling up what are you going to do when Boris Johnson has essentially stolen Labour's clothes on investing in town centres now there are some really interesting ideas kicking around within Labour but Keir Starmer's going to knit them into this framework and that's going to be a much more difficult job than just donning the Union Jack and saying I love the Queen the BBC and the Commonwealth. Anna, in terms of what Keir Starmer needs to do now, he's clearly had, as the polls show, he's had a good few weeks, but actually that's more the fact that Boris Johnson's had a bad few weeks. Has has Keir Starmer yet shown an ability to sort of make the political weather rather than sort of enjoy it when when it's raining on Boris Johnson to mix uh, several metaphors I think has he got that ability you think as as Seb says this is a speech which says he likes the Queen and the Commonwealth Games and the World Cup and uh, and all of that and Tony Blair um, but it doesn't tell us anything about what he's going like his ability to make the country sit up straight and go wowzers that's a that's a smart idea I hadn't thought of before I, I think you're right. I mean, my, my sort of assessment would be a, a lot done, a lot to do. Um, I think I'm I'm a, I'm a very impatient person. And what I've learned from Keir is actually I think he's a lot more patient than I am. And I think he's probably right to do that. You know, I've been kind of clamoring for policy and ideas and, and stuff for two years. But actually, you know, we've had COVID, we've had uh, to deal with Corbyn, we've had, you know, Keir's had to sort of rebuild a really strong team, which I think he's got now. He's putting those foundation blocks in place. He's detoxifying the brand and I think now we're kind of at base camp and um which was which was a you know a battle enough to get here now I (laughs) I agree with Seb I I want to see the vision I want to see the policy I want to see the forward plan but I actually I'm developing a a, a real kind of faith and a trust in Keir that he's actually got a lot more level head perhaps than people like me um that he has got a plan we have got time you know the danger is you know the danger in the last election was we had a big manifesto with 100 policies and no one believed that we had the credibility to deliver any of them so you could he could come forward with a great menu now which a the Tories could steal because that's the reality of them being in power and up, up, us in opposition 
B could be out of date by the time we get to an election um, and C could, could people might not believe that we're able to deliver. So I think we've got to get the timing right on this stuff. This was important. Um, it's important to say we're a patriotic party and, you know, and, and, and reclaim the flag from from the Tories and UKIP, which we've ceded over the last few years. Next step now is to set out what kind of Britain a Labour government will build. And I have every confidence that Keir will do that. And, I, and I, you know, he's got a great team around him. And I think now is the time as we emerge from the pandemic to really set out a different vision of Britain. And I, and I feel I liked his reference sort of back to Attlee into that post 45 Labour government, because I think that's something that we can really start to say. This is, you know, a new opportunity for people to come together, having been through a terrible time collectively. Now as a country, let's move forward together. And what kind of Britain, what kind of Labour Britain can Keir build? Uh, just funny, Anna, are you, are you standing again next time? I, do, I don't know. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still asked every day when I go. I'm out walking my dog. I'm uh, I'm enjoying watching. I'm enjoying being a, a human being and not having to wake up in the night with the horrors of social media. So um, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.